You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. 24 hours later, I was arrested and sentenced to four and a half years in prison. And that was when I rebuilt my life. You know, it was the gift of desperation. I never want to go back. You know, I, I stopped seeing life when I would fail as these indicators of self-worth. It was just life trying to teach me how to win, right? And so for me, sobriety has not been easy, but the commitment has been steadfast. It's been 14 years, over 14 years, 14 and almost maybe almost a half years. My guest today is Tony Hoffman. He is a professional BMX racer and a former Olympic coach. Welcome to the show, Tony. Man, I would love to just jump right in and uh, have you tell your story. Yeah, so um, I grew up in California, uh, Central Valley, California, Fresno. I was a part of Clovis Unified School District, and uh, the school district that I was a part of was uh, well, uh, pretty known for its sports programs. We've had back-to-back national baseball champions, uh, nationally recognized football programs, basketball programs. Uh, the top wrestlers in the United States come from uh, the city and Clo- Clovis Unified School District. And so, you know, being a young kid, uh, I got involved in sports. I was very gifted in sports. Basketball was, you know, my first dream. Uh, I wanted to go to the NBA. And by the time I was in sixth grade, high school coaches were were coming to watch me play and middle school coaches were coming to watch me play. And when I got into middle school, I really started to struggle with uh, mental health stuff, stuff that we didn't talk about in the 90s. I was born in 83. So I'm uh, an 80s baby and went through middle school and high school and part of the 90s. And at this time, there was really no conversation around mental health. Uh, There was no conversation around anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. Uh, We didn't have resources for these types of things um, the way we do now. And I would still say now we're still uh, not quite where we need to be. Uh, My big thing was uh, uh, social anxiety. I was not able to really kind of fit in with people and make friends because I had this social anxiety that would create these fears around uh, being around people in public spaces or being around groups of uh, large groups of people or even just groups of people for that matter. And uh, as a result of this social anxiety, I found myself isolating away from individuals. And the isolation really kind of gave birth to my depression. And uh, the depression really kind of gave birth to the suicidal ideations uh, where, where I felt like, you know, killing myself was a way to alleviate or get rid of the pain that I was experiencing within myself because nothing I seemed to do uh, was working at 12 years old. You know, I was vocalizing this pain to my parents. They didn't know what to do. Um, My parents are are boomers um, in every description of what we would think a boomer is. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with boomers. Uh, They just come from a generation that is typically emotionally uh, ignorant. They uh, are unaware of their emotions. They're unaware of uh, social, emotional well-being. Um, they tend to be hard workers, uh, focused on retirements and providing, which I think are great things um, that even generations like Gen Z could really benefit from um, in terms of dropping entitlement, focusing on working hard and uh, earning your position in life. Uh, but my parents were workaholics, and. I was an individual that emotionally needed their support and I wasn't getting that. 
And so what I did was I started to make all of these connections and stories that I would create uh, starting when I was 12 years old. You know, I, I, I wasn't good enough. My dad doesn't love me. My dad's my hero. I want my dad at all my basketball games, but he's not showing up. And so I'm telling myself, you know, I'm not good enough. My dad doesn't love me. Um, other people are good enough and other families love their kids because they're showing up to these games. And really what it did was give birth to a lot of resentment that I didn't know was building at that time. Uh, it's really hard to recognize that you're building resentments towards other people when you're completely uh, unaware of self, when you're unaware of the emotions that you're experiencing, what you're feeling in that moment. And so I was building this resentment towards my father, towards my parents, um, towards their work, and really uh, the emotional neglect that was at no fault or like it wasn't intentional by my parents is really the catalyst to becoming this person who uh, was completely uh, defiant. I, I just stopped caring when I was 12 years old. Um, I, my, it, it appeared that my dad didn't care. It appeared that uh, my parents were more focused on work. And so if they didn't care, then why did I care? There was no reason to care. And I didn't fit in with people at school. And because I didn't fit in with people at school or felt like I didn't fit in with people at school as a result of this social anxiety, or I really uh, spent a lot of time to myself. Um, and the problem was, is that I was so good at sports that uh, there was always this attention that came with my gift and this attention that I didn't really want. And it really started to make me resent myself because I didn't know how to manage the attention. I didn't really want the attention. And uh, I felt so disconnected from everybody else. It just felt like uh, I, di I didn't have a gift. It felt like I had a curse. And, you know, like I said, killing myself seemed to be um, something that I thought about often from 12 to, you know, my mid 20s. I was kicked out of school in seventh grade and I got some girl, a girl, some weed. It was one of the decisions I made to try and uh, get kind of some kind of social validation within the institution of school that I was in. And I was removed from seventh grade, which is how I found the BMX bike. I found the BMX bike and my brother was racing BMX at this time. And I was just like I said, I, I was such a naturally gifted athlete. By the time I got on my bike at 12, at 18 years old, I was on the cover of the largest BMX racing magazine in the world. I was ranked number one in the points going into the final race. I was sponsored by Fox Racing, Airwalk Shoes, Five Sunglasses. I had, you know, all of the setup stuff to be successful in, in racing BMX if I wanted to go off and become a professional shortly after that time of being a senior in high school. But uh, I still struggled with my mental health. You know, being on the cover of a magazine didn't fix things. Having sponsorships didn't fix things. Friends didn't fix things. I really just struggled internally with myself. And that was really when I got involved in trying mind-altering substances. I explained to people that, you know, human emotions are a lot like uh, soda bottles. When you shake a soda bottle, emotional pressure builds up. When we have... Uh, events occur in our life that cause some kind of um, arousal of emotions, we experience a similar pressure. Uh, the more pressure that builds from shaking the bottle or experiencing things in our lives, um, the more pressure we experience and then the more um, the more willing we become to find things that change the way we feel to alleviate the pressure that we're experiencing. And if you're not using healthy coping mechanisms to do so, you will find things that change the way you feel in terms of mind-altering substances. Um, now, 
I would say that most people are doing this in many different ways, television, uh, coffee, um, gambling, there's all types of different things that you can do exercise, there's healthy things, and there's unhealthy things. And uh, we develop these coping mechanisms, or we do these things to release the emotional pressure that we experience. Uh, Some people are that are not like myself can enjoy a glass of wine. And what do they say? I'm having a glass of wine so I can unwind from the day. Unwinding is just releasing the emotional pressure from the day. Uh, For myself at this time, when I was 18 years old, I had a misconception about addiction and what it was. I uh, thought that it was individuals that lacked willpower that just couldn't control themselves. Um, I thought that it was people that came from the other side of town um, that these individuals just uh, were raised in bad places or their mother and father weren't involved in their lives. Just, you know, all kinds of uh, stigma related ideas that were faulty. Uh, my dad was an alcoholic, but a binge drinker. Um, his mom was a drug addict, alcoholic, pill popping alcoholic, and her dad was an alcoholic. And so I had addiction that kind of ran in my family. And so when I was 18 and I started experimenting with mind-altering substances, at that time, uh, marijuana was the first thing that people used, drinking in marijuana. Nowadays, it's a little bit different. Usually, it's like vaping um, and pills are equally as mixed into the group as much as marijuana is, right? And so, you know, I had this impression that I would just smoke weed and I would do it occasionally because I would was offered a job to go down and be a network administrator. I didn't want to race BMX professionally. It wasn't something I saw myself doing. And so I was pursuing a network administration career uh, for computer networks and was offered a, a, a nice job in San Diego before I graduated high school. And so I'm smoking weed and telling myself, you know, I've got all these responsibilities that I need to take care of. I'm not going to become a uh, you know pothead like all my friends are. They're smoking every day, ditching school, like that's just not for me. Um, in fact, we didn't help my anxiety. It didn't help my depression. Uh, it really didn't help my suicidal thoughts. Like if anything, it made it worse. I just became more paranoid. Um, I had more anxiety. I wasn't fi- getting any kind of relief uh, internally, but it was kind of helping me break down some of my social anxieties. It made me feel like I had something in common with these individuals that I was smoking with. And so before I knew it, you know, I was smoking every day. I went down to San Diego. The job didn't work out. And I'm blaming myself the entire time that, you know, life is just not falling into place. It's my fault. It's my fault. Uh, And if it's not my fault, it's also, uh, you know, let me back up. It's my fault in a shaming way. It's because I'm not good enough. It's not my fault because I'm holding myself accountable and I'm going to make changes so that I get different results in the future. It's my fault because I'm not good enough. And I carry this victim mentality of life, right? Like life is out to get me. My coaches are out to get me. My teachers are out to get me. Society is out to get me, you know, just anything and everything in terms of victim mentality. And so I quit. I came home when I came home, uh, you know, San Diego, six hours South of Fresno County, where I'm from, I just started going to parties again. And I got introduced to Oxycontin. When I got introduced to Oxycontin, it was uh, a miracle to put it, uh, and any, it's just it. It was a miracle because for the first time in my life, uh, I felt something release all of the pressure that I was feeling and building since I was 12 years old. I'm now 18 years old. So I had six years of pressure. I couldn't find anything that would release the pressure in a way that gave me some kind of relief. Racing my bicycle absolutely was doing that. 
to a certain degree, um, but I didn't recognize it at that time uh, because I didn't have the two forms of emotional release that I think that human beings need to feel secure in their mental health. And one is an activity and two is a safe place to have a conversation. Um, I had an activity. I didn't have a safe place to have a conversation. So uh, my bicycle was helping, but when I put my bike away, I had um, a buildup of emotional pressure that Oxycontin seemed to fix. It took away my anxiety. It took away my depression, my suicidal thoughts. And when I started using it, I thought to myself, well, I would never become a drug addict. This is not heroin. This is not crack cocaine. This is not cocaine, meth, or you know, LSD, or some of these other things that the DARE program told us to stay away from. So in my mind, I was justified in using Oxycontin because it came from a doctor. And it was the first time I'd ever felt normal, or so I thought. And within three years, I committed a home invasion robbery um, for prescription pills that were inside a house. Uh, biggest mistake I've made in my life. And I became uh, so willing to do it uh, because I was experiencing heroin withdrawals, basically, from these prescription painkillers. And uh, anybody that's listening right now knows that when you go through these withdrawals, you go, you'll do whatever it takes. You know what I'm saying? I, I've seen straight people turn into homosexuals. I've seen uh, honest, good people uh, rob and steal and scheme. Um, there's just so many different things that people will do to, uh, to fix uh, the feeling of withdrawal symptoms. And uh, that, was from, that was me. I, I became willing to arm myself with a weapon and go inside a house and rob a, an individual at gunpoint. Um, fortunately, I was not arrested immediately. And when I was arrested, that I uh, was given a shot. My parents had seen me in several years. They kicked me out of the house and uh, I asked for help and they offered me help. And they got me an attorney, a really good attorney that kept me out of prison. And being a white kid from the good side of town with a good attorney in court really helps. And uh, so it kept me out of prison, but I had all these things that I needed to do, felony probation, and I couldn't come back. If I came back, I was going to go to prison for a long time. Um, I had this conception in my mind that now that I had prison time over my head, I would, I'd be okay. I'm not going to go to prison. I don't want to use again because I don't want to go to prison, but that's just not the way it works. You know, um, you have to recognize that there's a problem. And in that problem, recognizing that there's a problem, you have to seek out a solution. The solution doesn't find you. You, you, you seek out the solution. I think the solution can find you um, in terms of people saying, hey, you know, you should come to a meeting. Hey, you should come to church. Hey, you should come to this uh, fellowship group or you should come to this uh, skate park where we have smart meetings and it's a bunch of dudes and girls getting that are sober and just trying to, you know, be the better people than they were before and stay away from the stuff that was killing us. But I didn't recognize I had a problem. I was still a young kid. I was still uh, 21 years old, you know. You don't hear many stories of 21-year-olds getting sober. You don't hear too many stories of 18-year-olds getting uh, sober. You know, there's there's just so much that has to happen before we reach a moment where the gift of desperation is upon us. And I, I didn't reach that for another two years. I relapsed right when I got out of treatment. And uh, my parents kicked me back out of the house. And for the next two years, you know, I was just on a downward spiral until I became homeless. And... Uh, you know, I hear people talk about being homeless all the time, man. And, I, and I'm not really into uh, comparing stories, even though that's what I'm going to do. I, I just, uh, I, my homeless wasn't sleeping on people's couches. 
know what I'm saying? I was fucking pushing shopping carts, sleeping behind dumpsters. Um, you know, people would throw stuff at me or make fun of me outside of liquor stores. Like I was in bad shape and, uh, you know, my friends would leave me, um, and drive to another side of town with them. And then they would just leave me over there, you know, and I would spend the rest of the night walking around town by myself, uh, you know, high on meth, been up for six, seven, eight days, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 days at a time, you know, talking to myself and, um, just in a, an utter, state of despair and hopelessness and, um, shame and guilt, uh, just all that stuff that many of us have felt. And, uh, you don't have to be homeless to feel that, you know, it's such an interesting thing. Some people feel that as soon as they lose their job, you know, or their wife kicks them out and they just, they feel exactly what I felt when I was pushing a shopping cart or, you know, uh, kids would throw stuff at me. You know, I was walking down the street and they were driving drive mine a bus, you know, middle school kids throwing shit at me while I'm walking down the street. You know, it's like, uh, you know, they feel that when their wife leaves them, they feel that when they lose their job. And I didn't think there was coming back from that. That's, you know, at that point, I, I, I this is going to be the rest of my life. There's, I've tried to change. I've tried treatment. Uh, jail didn't work. Uh, my family's given up on me. Friends have given up on me. Uh, I'm just destined to put these needles in my arm. And eventually one of these times uh, I'll be lucky when it kills me right? in the misery that I'm living in. That's just not the way my stories played out. You know, it wasn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't stay on the street for much longer. I was on the street for six months and uh, I had a spiritual awakening. It was a sudden epiphany. And in that epiphany, um, I believe I was, uh, shown what mercy and grace look like. I was shown that uh, I'm not in control like I thought, and that uh, something greater was out there. And that something greater loved who I was, uh, despite all of my uh, shortcomings, despite all of my failures, uh, despite how much I believed that the world was against me. Um, there was this one thing that wasn't against me. And 24 hours later, I was arrested and sentenced to four and a half years in prison. And that was when I rebuilt my life. You know, it was the gift of desperation. I never want to go back. You know, I, I'm always um, perplexed when I go to a meeting and I hear an individual say how fun it was. It was never fun for me. You know, it was a relief in the beginning. But I would never call what I went through fun. You know, staying up till five o'clock in the morning, snorting cocaine because you can't fucking come down and you don't want to come down. So you're just snorting line after line after line after line after line till it's five o'clock in the morning. And then you see the sun come up. And then when you switch to meth, you can watch the sun come up and go down 15 times before you go to sleep. Like uh, there was nothing fun about that. There was nothing fun about being around individuals um, that you, give you a place to stay when you're at your worst. And uh, take your wallet in the middle of your sleep and steal your last $20 so they could go fucking buy cigarettes and uh, some hot Cheetos. You know what I'm saying? There was nothing fun about that to me. And so um, the desperation that I felt was I'm never going back to that. I'm never going to surround myself with individuals that uh, harm other people, that have ill will towards other people. Um, I'm not going to squander the gifts that I was given. I'm going to be grateful for every opportunity that I have. 
Um, and I'm going to make mistakes and I'm going to learn from those mistakes. You know, I, I stopped seeing life um, when I would fail as these indicators of self-worth. It was just life trying to teach me how to win, right? And so for me, sobriety has not been easy, but the commitment has been steadfast. It's been 14 years, over 14 years, 14 and almost maybe almost a half years because I don't ever want to go back. There's nothing fun about it. You know, when I go through an emotional experience and my brain recalls using dope, um, it's quickly followed up by torment, a vision of torment, uh, pushing a shopping cart, watching my friends get in cars and leave me in the middle of nowhere. So I could walk around the rest of the night by myself, you know, like I, it's just not the answer, you know, uh, because anxiety has never lasted forever. Depression has never lasted forever. Um, you know, even maybe subtle thoughts of removing myself have not lasted forever in recovery. Um, but it's also brought individuals in my life that truly care. I have a small list of people that truly care. Um, and that list is um, dynamic, right? Individuals can come and go from our lives. And I don't take that personal these days. Um, if an individual shows that they can no longer be trusted, I have no problem getting rid of them. You know, it's, uh, it's just not worth having individuals that I can't trust in my life. It's not worth having individuals that don't care for me in my life. It's not worth it for me to have individuals that don't support me, um, that uh, can't be there for me in a similar fashion that I am there for them. And that doesn't mean they need to call me every day. It just means they need to, to be there if I need them. And uh, recovery has given me that. That's uh, one of the greatest gifts that recovery has given me as a small group of people that truly care about me. Uh, my relationship with my family has been rebuilt. Uh, my career life has been extremely successful um, as, a, as a mental health and addiction speaker, um, as a coach for BMX. You know, I was able to be a part of the Olympics in 2016 as a BMX coach. Uh, became one of the biggest speakers in the mental health and addiction space, started a nonprofit organization for kids in 2012 and was very successful for several years before we finally uh, stepped away from that work. You know, we raised over $100,000 a year, giving away $40,000 worth of bicycles, $10,000 worth of skateboards. Uh, recovery has given that to me. And uh, everything that recovery has given me, it's typically been to give to somebody else. And so today I live, try to live my life uh, as grateful as I can, no matter what shit happens, life happens sometimes comes in waves, but I've always had a, uh, I'm not going to pick up attitude. That's just not an option, you know? And so, uh, you know, I, I come across opportunities like this where you uh, invite me onto your podcast to, to share my story. And I'm always grateful for, for these types of things. And I've, I've just never been too good for him. If I got time for it, I'll do it. So with that, um, thank you for allowing me to share my story on here. I hope somebody found something that was uh, of benefit to them. I know uh, 30 minutes isn't usually a, a long time for me to speak, so there's not a lot of details. But you can find more about my story on my, my podcast, One Choice. It's on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcast app. I have a website, Tony Hoffman Speaking. You can find me on Instagram, Tony M. Hoffman. On Facebook, Tony Hoffman speaking. And uh, 
if you have questions, you can reach out to me. If you need a little help, you can reach out to me. This is my life work and I make myself available. So um, with that said, thank you, Brett, for, for having me on the show. And thank you guys for listening. Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your story with us. I also wanted to give you a warm Texas welcome and say we're glad to have you in the Lone Star State. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.